This city is booming. Change happens fast here. One day I walk by a squat convenience store with an apartment on top. The next day the windows are bare. A few days later it's a hole in the ground. A few months after that, it's a mid-rise condo. Change is good. It's a sign of a thriving city. But with that change comes some degree of loss. We may find ourselves pining for what we had. Sometimes, when the pace of change happens so rapidly as it does in major cities, it's hard to take stock of what we're losing. With growth comes growing pains. It's important to have conversations about the way we want to grow. Important to ensure that as we progress, we're not leaving behind the things or people that are essential to the kind of city we're proud of being. These conversations are difficult with many moving parts and an unforgiving timeline, but they are essential. As the old saying goes, if you don't know where you've been, you don't know where you're going. Here, we talk to a few people who brought their own compass. This is Spacing Radio. We are back in the broom closet at 401 Richmond Street West, Toronto, Ontario. I'm Glenn Bowerman, and you're listening to the official podcast of Spacing Magazine. In this episode, we talk heritage, keeping up with the pace of growth, and the kind of city we aspire to be. We talk to an indie theater company trying to bring art into the heart of communities and sell it like pizza. And we hear from the producers of the grand farewell to the legendary Honest Ed's department store. But first... Caitlin Wainwright, Heritage Toronto's Director of Programming, gives us an update about heritage challenges facing our city, how we take stock of our historical assets, how we protect them, and a brief peek at an exciting new archaeological dig in the heart of the city. Stand by. So, Caitlin, there are a lot of big de- developments uh, with Heritage Toronto and Heritage in the City, uh, and uh, I was hoping that you could take us uh, through some of the, the, the major ones right now that we're seeing. Yeah, so anytime a, a city undergoes a period of significant change and development, that's always going to dredge up our um, emotions about place. And really, that's a lot of what heritage is, is our stories and our connections to um, sites and traditions and experiences that that we share commonly. So um, obviously, a big one right now at Bloor and Bathurst is Honest Ed's. And uh, I was walking by there recently, shortly after they shut down the, the lights, and it totally struck me how um, that light-filled intersection that is no more light-filled, uh, that that shift and that recognition and that memory of um, of the lights coming up. And, and it'll be really interesting to see how that site becomes remembered as the new development comes in. I think Honest Ed's is, uh, in a lot of ways, sort of a, a small national historic site with a small n, small h, small s. It's a site that is of significance to a fairly substantial part of of Toronto um, and indeed the the nation. Anyone who moved here, um, you know, has likely shopped there at one point or another. Yeah. And speaking about heritage as as an emotional connection to a place, uh, people on my on my social media feeds were, were almost in mourning in a way uh, you know they were taking pictures of of honest heads being like this is this is the last one 
Yeah, absolutely. They it's an emotional connection, it's also a sensory connection. So it's not only about what we see, but it's it's what we hear. So um, you know, the cast registers that we hear in Honest Eds or the Honest Eds adverts, for example, and it's you know, that that feeling that you have, um, and the way that a space can convey that beyond its architecture is really quite profound. And so cities, you know, cities change, they they grow, they they shift and uh uh, something like Honest Eds, uh, it sort of brings up questions of, well, what do what do we keep? What what is what is essential to the character of a neighborhood or to to the sort of um, palimpsest that's uh, that defines us? Uh, that those kind of questions come up with this. Yeah, so um, I was in a meeting a while back with Michael McClellan from ERA Architects, and he situated it really nicely in the the work that he as a heritage architect does is about retaining what it is we value and what we want to continue to value going forward. So that's a decision that we have to come to collectively. And for some people, you know, the Sam the Record Man sign or the Honest Ed sign, that neon bright advertising as architecture is something that is really valuable. Uh, And I think that's why you see a big push. Some people call it nostalgia, but I think there is a legitimate claim that can be made that that is part of a specific group's heritage and and shared identity. Um, but I, I think that's that is something that comes up time and again when we see those changes happening is what is it that we value? What are we retaining? Uh, and I think that's best demonstrated when you look at uh, conversations that are happening now around facadism. And for the last 10, 20 years, it was seen as relatively acceptable to retain the facade of the building because we value the property. We value the architecture. We value what the establishment, dare I say, uh, has installed into that public space. And we aren't having conversations about what happened in those buildings necessarily. There was an interesting conversation on Twitter just before the holidays about um, the Broadview Hotel site. And uh, somebody from the, the National Post tweeted like, oh, you know, why why is this history being whitewashed? And why aren't they talking about Jillies? And you know, in regards to a plaque that Heritage Toronto had worked on with Riverdale Historical Society. And, and my response to that was really that, you know, the purpose of that plaque was about the historic property, which is about the exterior of the building. But the fact that they wanted us to dig more deeply, I thought was very much positive. Um, but in doing that, the history and the heritage, it gets a lot more messy and complicated because you're getting into issues of gender and labor and class and, um, you know, work culture. If you're going to talk about the ground floor of Jillies as having significance to the community, which community? Is it the community of women who worked there? Is it the community that um, were patrons? And if you're going to talk about Jillies, are you also going to talk about the, the rooms that were above Jillies? and the experiences of those people who stayed in those rooms. So heritage is a very messy thing, and sometimes we tend to oversimplify it. Jilly's, for the listeners, is is a former strip club that is now being turned into a hotel. Um, Going more broadly, uh, Councillor Joe Cressy, I believe, uh, and uh, the uh, chief planner, Jennifer Kiesmet, they are are looking to, uh, to use a... To sort of slow uh, what they feel is, is rapid growth in, in a certain section of downtown uh, just so that they have time to sort of assess whether or not some couple hundred of these buildings in, in a certain area do have heritage value. And if they do, what does that mean? What, what, uh, what needs to be protected and, and how do we go 
ahead uh, with, you know, probably with an eye to avoiding the sort of facadism that you're, you're talking about. Yeah, so there are about uh, 300 properties in the King Spadina neighborhood, which was largely an industrial neighborhood, um, that have been sort of earmarked and flagged where Councillor Cressy moved a motion recently, and it, it had, I believe, support from the, uh, the city planning department to, to basically, as you say, sort of press pause and say, okay, let's stop and take a look. What do we have here? What do we value? And how do we want to ensure that what we value is protected going forward? A lot of people don't realize this about the city's um, heritage register, which was previously known as the Inventory of Heritage Properties. And that is an inventory, a register that lists which buildings are protected under the Ontario Heritage Act, which is the the policy um, that governs heritage in Ontario. Um, and under the Ontario Heritage Act, a building can be either listed, which is a um, it's a form of protection, but higher than that is a designation, and it can also be designated as part of a district. What a lot of people don't realize that um, inventory of heritage properties it was first established in 1973, and the reason it's called an inventory is because quite literally there were experts. architects and architectural historians who went door to door and said, that's heritage, that's heritage, that's heritage. Oh, that building? Yeah, that's that's relatively recent. We don't need to include that. Um, And that's not something that we've really done since then. Since then, the tool that we've been more often using is the Heritage Conservation District, which is when um, a community comes forward and with support from a city planner's office and working in close tandem with them and with other experts, they take a look at an area at, at properties within a certain parameter. So, for example, uh, there was a, a Heritage Conservation District recently completed, a study recently completed in uh, the St. Lawrence Market neighborhood, and that was looking at the commercial buildings, the residential buildings, um, institutional buildings, and saying, yep, these buildings within this parameter, they contribute to the neighborhood character of St. Lawrence neighborhood and to uh, the history and the heritage of the neighborhood. And so they are now included on the on the register of historic properties. But other than taking a neighborhood by neighborhood approach, we haven't gone through the city large scale and said, okay, what should be included and what needs to be updated? Because there are a number of properties that are that are listed that if there were resources available, they could be considered for a, a greater form of protection like a designation. Right. And in and, and some corners, uh, you know, uh, these sort of um, conservation districts, people are worried that it, it, um, it is being used as a form of nimbyism. Uh, to that some people just don't want to see growth or change in the city uh, so how how do you how, how do you identify you know what what has heritage value versus what is just a maybe a fear of change I think that's a really good question uh, <laughs> and I don't know if I necessarily have the answers to that I've certainly seen um, a certain amount of neighborhoods that have used heritage protections as a tool of protectionism for the neighborhood. I don't think that it's fair to paint heritage entirely with that brush, because if a property does become protected, then um, it is the responsibility of the, the property owner to, if they are going to undertake renovations, do so in a way that is respectful. So while of the, of the building's heritage, so while on the one hand, you can make the argument that um, 
It's designed to prohibit development. It's also designed in such a way that um, it's it's a negotiation of the the property um, that the owner has to then take upon themselves. I also like to ask about uh, you know the the pressure of these heritage buildings or these heritage districts to conform with uh, with the way the rest of the city is growing up so quickly. Uh, you know, either through tax assessment, or uh, as is the case with 401 Richmond Street, which is the home of Spacing Magazine. Uh, but things like that, uh, is, there, is there a lot of pressure for these buildings to just to go with the flow and, and to, to become these, these sort of condos and, and high rises? I think, again, um, thinking about how we define property and the purpose of property in Canada and, and the um, primacy that we give to property ownership, just generally in in Canadian society, there definitely is that pressure for these buildings to conform. Um, I live near High Park Avenue, and there's a, a great example of that where a heritage property has almost become a podium for a larger condo, where um, because of the nature of of zoning and uh, financial nature of things within the real estate development market, that was sort of considered the highest and best use, quote unquote. Um, and that does seem really unfair when there's a lot of creative uses that that heritage buildings are naturally inclined to. Uh, I think the other thing that really also needs to be highlighted is the work that's being done to improve upon a a heritage grants rebate program um, that the city of Toronto operates where homeowners can say, you know, I'm restoring my porch, I'm replacing the windows, and that's a cost I'm undertaking. You know, help me out, help me support the heritage fabric of the city. And sort of switching, uh, switching topics a little bit. Uh, right outside your window here, uh, you have uh, you have a very great view of a, a very important uh, dig that's going on, an uh, urban archaeological uh, dig uh, in the St. Lawrence Market area. Yeah, so there's. Um, I know that the archaeological dig of the Ward site uh, up on Centre Street has gotten a lot of media attention recently. But as you say, just south of St. Lawrence Hall, north of the St. Lawrence Market building, um, there's the excavation of several different market sites. So the North Market building, which was demolished, it was an 18, uh, 1968 building, and I believe it was the fifth market um, on that site. There had always been a market on that site since 1803, which is kind of really cool to think about more than two centuries of people buying and selling goods and of food culture and transportation happening on that site. Uh, And so as part of the the new construction of the North Market site, which will also house some courthouses, uh, they have had to do an excavation. It began with a stage two and three, which is where they dig individual trenches and do test trenches. in those, they found ceramics, they found bone fragments. I won't give away spoilers of all the things they found. Uh, there's an exhibit right now at the Market Gallery that I highly recommend uh, listeners check out that showcase some of those stage two and three finds. And then currently, as you mentioned, there's a stage four assessment, which is where they essentially excavate the entirety of the site um, and really learn about that site's history and heritage through archaeology. Well, Caitlin, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk heritage with me today. It's my pleasure. And if you want to learn more about archaeology in this city, 
Heritage Toronto invites you to St. Lawrence Hall, February 11th, for a symposium and an exhibit talking about the most recent finds in the historic marketplace. Now, if you live in Toronto, you've probably paid your farewell respects to Honest Ed's. The iconic sign is synonymous with the Annex, a neighborhood that's about to undergo a profound change. A new group, Toronto for Everyone, wants to send Ed's off in style with an inclusive celebration running from February 23rd to the 26th. We spoke to event co-producers Hima Batavia and Nagan Serafi about what we can expect and how to get involved. So first, can you tell me why it's important to say a farewell to Honest Ed's? Uh, Honest Ed's was uh, a really iconic institution in Toronto. Um, People have a very strong emotional bond um, with the building. And I think because it was more than a retail store, it was actually a community hub um, over the last 68 years. Um, And it was really a place for everyone. I think everyone could not only find something they needed there, but they intersected with Honest Ed's um, at different parts of their lives and through different um, through different stories, whether it was being a new Canadian or living in the annex or being part of the theater community or being a student at U of T, um, Honest Ed's was sort of a fixture in, uh, in various life stories across Toronto. And, uh, it's going to be host, uh, as a farewell that, uh, you, you're organizing, uh, for, for three days, I believe. Um, what can people expect at this, this big farewell? It's actually four days. We keep, Sorry, four days. We keep we keep getting bigger. Um, you know, we it started out as a one night party. That was the that was the original idea. Um, and when we came up with the idea of Toronto for everyone, we realized that having a one evening nineteen plus party is not inclusive. That's not for everybody. So we then scope creeped and created a festival, um, and with the idea that there is something at the festival for everyone. Um, so we start on the Thursday evening with a gala event, um, and that's kind of kind of the opening night party, and it's also what we are using to launch Toronto for Everyone. Um, and then Friday, Saturday, Sunday, we have a immersive, interactive art maze that's happening in the West Building. Um, and simultaneously, we're going to have a community hub, which is programmed by different individuals and organizations, morning to evening, um, and also a market, which is bringing together the best markets across the city and on Saturday night is our big farewell bash okay and uh, can you tell me a bit about Toronto for everyone so Toronto for everyone is a new initiative by the Center for Social Innovation that focuses on collaborative and inclusive city building Um, and it's really you know the Center for Social Innovation has been around for 12 years and it's created a strong community and culture of belonging Um, and innovation and disruption. And this is really our response to kind of taking it out of the walls of our space, bringing it to the city and the world. Um, And we can't, you know, it's also extremely timely. I think more than ever, we need need inclusive communities. And what can we expect from Toronto for everyone in the coming year? Do we know? So it's 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 shaping real time um, and we're really, really excited. So as Negan mentioned, we're launching the initiative officially um, at the event um, and sort of bringing together a core group of members to shape what the future looks like. Um, But you can expect initiatives like um, a fund to support um, to support 
companies and startups and organizations that are really thinking about inclusive city building. Um, you can expect educational opportunities around allyship and what it means to be an ally. Um, and you can also expect advocacy through through a movement. What kind of things would uh, would constitute, uh, you know, inclusivity and uh, being a good ally uh, in terms of what you're looking for? Um, as Tanya Sermon, the CEO of Center for Social Innovation, would say, all great communities are like great potlucks. Everyone brings something to the table. And Rania Al Magamer, who is a CSI member. Um, kind of layered that quote and, and, and added the inclusivity piece, which is that inclusivity is not just about asking people to come to a potluck, but asking them to set the table with you. And so the idea is that we are a diverse city and in- inclusivity is intentional. So how can we take what's already great and then add some intentionality to it, whether it's across gender or accessibility or, or race or ethnicity or um, a religion? Like how can we bring all the different diverse groups of, of, of that live in the city together and, and, and build something and, and that create that movement. And so to us, inclusivity, more than anything, is giving everyone a voice and creating platforms for those voices to be heard. And so we're, we're sitting in the CSI annex at uh, Bloor and Bathurst, uh, which is a building, a place, a community hub that will be in the shadow of uh, whatever development uh, uh, Honest Ed's space turns into. What do you hope for the the neighborhood? Uh, how, how do you hope to see uh, whatever new comes out of this uh, to sort of integrate within this already existing community? I think that um, you know the end of Honest Ed's uh, is really sad, but it's also indicative of a time for change and growth of the city. Um, we're evolving really rapidly, and um, sometimes. Like when things end, it's an opportunity to envision what's next and what actually the city really needs as it's changing and evolving so fast. Um, our demographics are changing, our economy's changing, and it and it calls potentially for a new type of development. Um, and I think CSI, you know, one of its, one of its gifts has really been embedded at the grassroots level um, and and sort of representing that grassroots voice. And so even you know with the West Bank development, CSI um, brought forward the idea of micro retail and how do we bring in a micro retail component into the new development and really support small businesses and entrepreneurs and freelancers. And to me, that's an example of like embracing what's next um, and and what and what, you know, the communities in this area really need. And so I imagine, you know, as the area shifts, it will continue to do that work. And so uh, if people want to come say uh, farewell to Ed, uh, how, how did they get involved? Well, there are a number of ways. Um you can be directly involved with the event by volunteering. Um, our call for volunteers has already gone out. Uh, throughout like the month of February, really, we need as many hands as possible to bring this vision to life. Um, you can attend the experiences, whether it's the maze or register for the free events at the community hub, um, bring your family to the market, or come to a Saturday night party. Um, and if you really want to be a part of the future of Toronto for Everyone, we would really recommend coming to the gala and becoming a founding member. Look for details about the Honest Ed's farewell at torontoforeveryone.com. Now, in three years, the Storefront Theatre has become a community hub in Toronto's Bloor Court neighbourhood. Operating out of a former drugstore, it's been a theatre, a gathering space, and a resource centre. On Boxing Day, however, 
they were told they had to go. We speak to storefront artistic director Benjamin Blaze and managing director Claire Burns about next steps and how the city can help grassroots arts organizations looking to put down solid community roots. Hello? Hey, Benjamin. Speaking. It's Glenn. So, uh, first of all, for our listeners, do you want to tell us a little bit about the Storefront Company? Uh, absolutely. Uh, well, first, I want to thank you for having me on the show. It's awesome. It's our pleasure. Uh, helping us spread the word. Uh, so, the Storefront Arts Initiative is actually the name of the full company. The Storefront Theater is one of the facilities, one of the many facilities that we offer. And the Storefront Arts Initiative is a non-for-profit arts organization that is dedicated to fostering the growth of emerging arts and artists. Also, to reinvent the relationship to the greater community and live performance. Right. And I want to get back to the uh, the idea of uh, community, but uh, first... Uh there's a, you got a little bit of bad news this year. Uh, when I first met you, it was actually to cover the opening of the physical space uh, over uh, Blue near Ossington. Uh, mm-hmm. And this, this space that you've been in for a number of years now, you, you, are, you are being told you have to go. Yeah, well, I mean, it's just the, it's the end of a, of a chapter. You know? It's not the end of the book. And so this space was always a little tenuous, you know, it was derelict. When we first opened it, we had no intention of staying here for that long, absolutely. Like, the model of the Red One Theatre Collective, who is the resident theatre company here, was to move into derelict spaces, as it were, and set up a show for the duration of the run, and then tear it down and leave town. That's like the circus. And so, in 2013, um, we were going to do a production of Wait Till Dark, by Frederick Knott that I directed and, uh, and then, and then be finished and move on to find another space. But because of the high nature, high profile nature of this location and the total lack of affordable spaces for artists to produce work, we started getting all of this overwhelming positive feedback. When can I do a show? What's next here? What's going on? I want to be a part of this. So, you know, I turned to the group and it was like, we need to, you know, reinvestigate our business model. Maybe it's time that we establish a headquarters and some roots. And so we did that. And, but the whole time it was like, okay, we're going to be able to stay here for a while. And we were running it like a lemonade stand, man. Like we were just a bunch of kids. <laughs> so <laughs> Then about a year after that, we sort of pulled up our bootstraps. We suffered another sort of potential cataclysm, which was this flood of 2014, where a water main that feeds a fire hydrant right outside our front door broke in the dead of winter and started just pouring into the basement, um, started like, filling up this basement, the one next to us, then ruined everything that we had down there, all of our technical facilities, our costumes, our paperwork. Uh, we thought that was the end. But from there, again, the community rallied together. People put on their welly boots and they all came and got their hands literally dirty to help them save what was, what was here. And, and we raised some money. We raised actually twice as much money as what I used to start the place with. And took that as an opportunity to kind of evolve a little bit, turn the dial up on, on, our, on our seriousness. Um, uh, from there, we started like, you know, galvanizing our administration and getting our stuff together and trying to like, trying to, we were investigating how we can bring these facilities that we have currently up to speed and making them, making them 
nice for the artists that play here, but also the patrons that come and see it. And, and through those investigations and those fundraising campaigns, realized that the amount of work that was going to have to go into this like derelict building, it would be better to tear tear it down, right? Nice. Um, to put a sprinkler system in a facility like this would be upwards to hundred thousand dollars. Capital that we weren't capital we weren't willing to invest in the space that wouldn't give us a long term lease, right? So we knew that this that the chapter that the you know the life of this particular space was at the end, and we had plans to move in June. The only the only really negative aspect of this is that it came six months too early, and we had to scuttle the current season. But we're, you know, we've, we've got plans to put two of the shows up, maybe a third, um, in in Liu, not here, in some in some other found spaces. Uh, there's one in particular I know that we're definitely going to do uh, in Kensington Market in uh, in the springtime. But that being said, this is a really uh, this is a really optimistic time for us and for the people that are working here and the people that are playing here because this is a time for growth. You know, at a board meeting that we were having, um, maybe like two weeks before we got this letter from the landlord, which incidentally he gave to us on Boxing Day, so Merry Christmas, but, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, was like, yeah, we know we got to move, and it's, it's time to either grow or die. Like, this is the time. Right. The early eviction, though, uh, th- this is the landlord perhaps looking for, uh, you know, a client, uh, sorry, a, a tenant that, uh, that could possibly uh, pay more. No, it's not quite that. It's, uh, I mean, he, if someone comes in here after us, he'll, he might jack the rent up, though this place is going to need a lot of work done to it. Right. The, it's, 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 it, what it comes down to is a taxation zoning legislation issue. Mm-hmm. This, there are greater problems than just, you know, abject greed in play here, and, or maybe larger greed that comes from higher-ups. Like, there, there's a major issue here in Toronto with regards to affordable art space. Um, the people at the 401 Richmond building, that building at Richmond was kind of the rent just quadrupled there, so almost every single artist that is in residence there has to leave. Uh, I, I should say for the listeners, the 401 Richmond building is, is home to Spacing Magazine. Absolutely, yeah, totally. There's there's one of them, and a number of like you know personal friends of mine, also other theater companies and and arts advocacy groups, and so that you know that's just indicative of a larger problem here in Toronto. One such thing is that we you know we we want to be one of the inciting incidents of our particular situation is that we wanted to. Uh, have this place rezoned so that we could apply for a liquor license and that we could get the proper safety um, uh, details in place, sprinkler systems, wider stairs, other washrooms. In order to do this stuff, you have to be zoned properly for it. Right. And um, and it's really, well, they think the uh, General Assembly is somewhere that can fit upwards to four to 500 people, not something that's you know, not, not quite what we have here. I mean, right. There, we were we exist in this kind of gray area, but we're a valuable resource to these these neighborhoods and these city centers because we culture seed them, right? We give we give like legitimate places for people to hang out, and we can we have to remain accessible. One of those things is cost. Like we can't charge forty dollars for tickets at these places. Otherwise, nobody will come. Too expensive, right? Uh, nobody will take a risk on a new playwright, or nobody wants to go drop forty bucks to go to that little theater on the corner but you know they'll be like oh let's pay 20 bucks and just see what's new and what's cool and this place is packed and full of people it's cooking and something's really <laughs> happening here and so 
my general manager, or the managing director rather here, Claire Burns, is is spearheading our initiative to communicate with the city, and uh, we're in talks with uh, Councilor Mike Layton and and a bylaw to get in front of the right people and, and start making the kind of policy changes that really need to happen. Uh, so this 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 incident has also allowed us to sit at those tables, right? Help affect real change in the city that will that will garner, you know, results years in the future, but like we get to be a part of that charge, leading that charge, and we're really, really proud of, of, of finding ourselves in that position and, and, and honored that the artistic community at large is willing to stand behind us as we lead that charge on their behalf. Right. And I want to come back to, um, you, you know, the idea that you were talking about, uh, the value of culture seeding and, and the value of a place like Storefront as a community hub, uh, something that uh, enriches a, a given neighborhood that it's in. Storefront has said that it, it was very important that the physical space be a storefront, uh, you know, right, right on street level. Uh, can you talk mm-hmm. a little bit about, about you know, art as a, as a sort of uh, community benefit? Yeah, totally. I mean, the, like... The theater, in my opinion, is living space, right? And so, therefore, it's not, it's really important that you see what is so vibrant and alive on the inside. I mean, the theaters, as they exist in their archaic fashion, are beautiful buildings with these really flashy and sensational marquees, but they're only lit up for like an hour a day. And then you look at the back of the theater, and it's a you know, 40-foot brick wall. But inside that theater, there are carpentry rooms, there are costume uh, departments and rehearsal studios and all the dudes hanging in the lights and all the people rigging up everything and painting. There's, there's like a hive of activity, right? Mm-hmm. That's important, I think, to see. The concept of having it on a store in a storefront, to me, is, is almost like a... Uh, sort of some subliminal semiotics like this. Oh, this, I can window shop this play here. Right. I, can, I can walk right through this door. Like there's nothing, there's no barrier here. That's like a, you know, um, a, a sense of, of propriety or, or a barrier in, of class or demographic or anything. It's like, Oh, this is, this is, this is, this door is like wide open to me. So I can walk right in. I can meet these people. I can come in and, and see this thing. Also like these ground level storefronts are very important to us in terms of accessibility, right? Like with accessibility for people with disabilities is one of our primary concern. And so like the storefront incidentally is one of the only indie theaters that is wheelchair accessible. Right. Because, you know, you roll right in, you, you know, come right into the space. Um, but I mean, on a, on a grander level, it's also like you're, it's, it's gotta be a place that you can like, you're walking by almost every single day and then you're like, hey, you know what, one day I'm going to go in there. And so if you bury these kind of spaces in a parking lot or underground in a basement, even if it's in a neighborhood, it doesn't have the same kind of cultural cachet that you can be like, hey, here we're, we're just like that pharmacy across the street, except we're, uh, we're, we have an arts offering. Our product is entertainment, is live music, is this, is that. It's not a bar, right? So you don't, you don't have to drink to come here. It's not a restaurant. You know, it's, it's, it's a theater. The focus is on art. That is the product that we create. Yeah, we do have concessions and there are, you know, there's, there's other little cool factors to it, but it's on a, it's like, it's a, on a visible marketplace, like a street, right? Where you mm-hmm. see, a, you know, a shawarma shop, a dress store, a shopper's drug mart, a theater, boom. And then you're reminded, you're like, oh yeah, art is there too. I can, I can, I, I can, I can get that art inside me as easy as I can get that piece of pizza. Right. And so it seems to me that, uh, 
you know, the, the city sort of has a one size fit all uh, sort of view toward, towards things uh, like what you're trying to do that you don't necessarily fit in. But it sounds to me like stories like yours are kind of pushing that, that conversation forward. Things are actually uh, going to be done. They are. Absolutely. I mean, there's been, a, there's been a, there's a, like uh, one of our sister companies, Unit 102 Theater, which was down at uh, Dufferin and Queens, suffered a very similar fate to us earlier or late last year, but I think in like, um, I don't know if it was October or November, but something very similar to them happened where they, they got, uh, they got asked to, they least got terminated because, um, the rents went really high. And then the guy wanted to, he's, he's shopping to sell the property to, uh, to a developer. He doesn't want anybody with a lease in there because the developer's like, Oh, I want to buy this corner and level this building. Like, I don't want to have to wait for this, these people's leases to run out. And so, uh, he terminated it. Right. And this mm-hmm. is like, this is very, I don't know if you saw any shows there. That was a great theater. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I did. You know, you know, one or two gone. <clears throat> um, there's there's uh, uh, another group. They, this, this space was only open for a little while, so it didn't really make it on the radar, but it was up and, and, and shut down for the same sort of reasons. And, you know, um, Clan Paper Theater, like their building just got like torn down at 35 strong. There's a really sad meme floating around the internet. I was like, this used to be a theater company, and there's like a big empty parking lot. They're like that's the size of the parking lot, but it's like a big hole in the ground. So it's the ebb and flow of, of change and commerce and you know civic growth. So artists have to be, you know, they have to be able to ride those waves. But the waves are surging really high in terms of like you know, cost, uh, money, inflation. Like the the but but the, the poor the poor artists ship is almost getting like is capsizing. We can still like ride these vibes, man, but like we need a bigger ship. In in terms of municipal regulation, uh, you're you're speaking to local councillors. Uh, you know what what needs to happen so that uh, there there is some sort of uh, legal room for for a company like you to exist. Well, lots of different things, and I wouldn't actually be the best person to talk to about that. My partner and, and managing director Claire Burns has far more far more details in regards to that. She's actually here if you'd like to talk to her. <laughs> Sure, put her on. Yeah. Hey, Claire. You want to you be on the radio? Hello, this is Claire. Hi, this is Glenn Bowerman from Spacing Radio, a podcast. Hi, Glenn. How are you? I'm doing well. You? I'm very well. Thanks, thanks uh, for so, having us on. No problem. Uh, we were just asking, uh, you know, uh, Benjamin mentioned that uh, there, there are certain zoning regulations from the city that uh, sort of make it difficult for uh, a company of your size and uh, uh, for what you're trying to do, it makes it hard for that sort of company to exist in, in a space like your your, your former space. Uh, so, just saying, uh, since you're having these talks with local councillors, uh, what what in your view needs needs to happen, or to what kind of flexibility do you need? Um, yeah. So, um, I guess our, as the storefront theater movement, we believe in taking over old storefronts, and a lot of the times, or most of the time, the storefronts are zoned as commercial retail spaces. And in order to get, um, you know, proper licensing to run a theater, we need to um, uh, go to Committee of Adjustment to change the use of the space from commercial retail to what is called like a general assembly or an assembly spacing. Um, and to do that, it costs money, you know, to go to Committee of Adjustment, $50,000. Um, and even then, the committee could say no. Um, so in order to legitimize sort of like the movement that we're doing, um, I'm 
I've been set up with meetings. Uh, I have meetings coming up in February with the licensing uh, bureau of uh, City Hall to discuss um, a model similar to what Chicago has, which is um, a separate license for storefront theaters. So, mm -hmm. uh, so then uh, most of the building code um, would remain the same, but it would be sort of squeezed down. So a lot of the zoning for theater spaces has to do with um, like based on larger theaters. Like when people think of theaters, usually they think of 200 to 500 people. And what we're looking at is more 50 to 60 people um, in a space. And so I'm trying to see if the city can um, either create a new license, licensing um, for storefront theaters. So that would be one thing. And then also to help, um, you know, artistic entrepreneurs um, succeed. Like it would be great if um, if we had help with this, you know, some kind of mentorship mm -hmm. through um, the process of, you know, changing the use of the space. Um, there's a lot of artistic entrepreneurship in the city, but not a lot of artistic artists are necessarily uh, really well-versed or knowledge in zoning and Ontario building code and that sort of thing. So having sort of a wing um, at the city that would be more concentrated towards artistic planning or um, artistic spaces um, would be uh, what we're trying to lobby for. And we're, we're also trying to, um, we're really trying to impress upon the city council and the city of Toronto that, um, you know, creating incentive for landlords to offer subsidized rent or subsidized spaces for arts um, organizations is uh, really important and not just the larger organizations, not just the commercial organizations, but for uh, more grassroots organizations that are springing up in neighborhoods themselves. Because, you know, we serve the neighborhood and we serve the community and Toronto is like the center for arts and culture in Canada. So the city should help, you know, not, not, I think on all levels, including this sort of micro infrastructure level. Residents of Lytton Park woke up one day to find a beautiful 110 year old building in their neighborhood had been leveled. The old Bank of Montreal building was one of the last examples of Beaux-Arts architecture in the city. The building was under review for heritage status, but somehow the developer who owned it quietly submitted a demolition order to the city and got it. No one seems to know how it happened. Fingers were pointed all around, but the building is gone. There's no do-overs in heritage. That's why these conversations about growth are essential. We have to be excited to have them or we'll quickly lose our way. When the ground around you is constantly shifting, we're going to want to bring our own compass. And that's our show. Thanks so much for listening. If you like this podcast, please tell your local historian, your favorite storyteller, and indie theater collective. A like, share, subscribe, or rating on iTunes will help us reach new ears. Look for the latest issue of Spacing Magazine February. Also, save February 15th on your calendar. Spacing Radio and Press Gang Theatre will be presenting a live storytelling night at the Garrison near Ossington and Dundas. Check Facebook for more details. I make this podcast with Neil Hinchley, who composes our music, and you can find his music on SoundCloud at Track82. Technical support was provided by Pixel Pie Productions at pixelpi.ca. Please hit us up with any questions, comments, concerns, and tips. We're on Twitter at Spacing Radio, all one word, or you can email me at glynbowermann at spacing.ca. 
Visit our website at spacing.ca or visit our city store at 401 Richmond Street West, Toronto. In the meantime, don't get caught with your prices down. Cheers. Cheers.